Well, happy Sabbath, everyone. I waited a whole week to see you back again. And I'm so glad that you're here today. Thank you for making time today to make this place the place where you can have a relationship and have an encounter in a personal level with Jesus Christ. For the last eight weeks, we've been in this series that we've titled Loved Even in Spite of Me. And today, like all good things, it's coming to an end. Yeah. And I'd like to start this message by telling you uh, something that happened to me uh, in Jordan. Uh, as we were in, in Jordan, we were walking down to Petra. And uh, as we were walking down, there were these stands where they were selling trinkets, souvenirs, all kinds of little things. And uh, I always like to get stuff, stuff that I can use in sermons. So when I approach this stand, I was attracted by coins. They look pretty old. They look pretty collectible. And the guy that was next to me, he said, oh, don't buy it now. I'll get it for you later. I said, okay. So I didn't buy it. And I forgot about the coins. We were walking back to the, to, to the bus in the afternoon. And, and, and the guy approached me and he, and he said, hey, 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 here. And he handed me this coin. Well, maybe you can see it better here. And he handed me this coin. And he said, this is an authentic replica. You know, and for a moment I thought, well, that sounds pretty cool. What? Authentic replica. You see, from the moment that we came to this world, the devil has been trying to sell us the idea that we'd have the truth, but in reality, it's been a replica. Today we'll dive into chapter 12 of Revelation. Chapter 12, the book of Revelation. This chapter is known as the outline of the history of the world. But not just that. This chapter will allow us to understand what is the true church. If you remember last week, we left Laodicea. Remember that? And when we left Laodicea, we found Jesus knocking at the door. And he's waiting for people to open the door. Well, today we'll find the characteristics of those people who will open the door for Jesus to come in. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now, this is the first character in the story. And the first character is a what? A woman. And this woman is dressed in white. And if you remember, week after week, we find the promise. By the way, those cards that you take at the end of the service, those are the promises that Jesus has given us. You're like, oh, now I get it. So, and, and the promises that we've been learning every week, we found out several times that Jesus has promised white garments white robes and last week we, we learned that this white robe is the justice of Jesus that covers our sin so this woman is covered by the grace 
of Jesus. Now on her head has a crown. A garland says in the New King James. But in the Greek is the word Stephanos. Stephanos. And I'm sure that you've seen movies of, of ancient Roman times or Greek times when somebody came victorious and they got a crown of, of an olive branch. That is called Stephanos. And Stephanos means that it's a crown of victory. So this woman represents the faithful people of God through the ages. Now I know some of you have heard it represents the church. But see the word church began after Jesus ascended to heaven. But this woman not only represents the people in the, in the New Testament times, represents the people who have been faithful to God through the ages. From Abel. Remember Abel? Offered the right sacrifice we talked about him last week. Well, this woman represents every single faithful individual who's lived on this planet and has been faithful to God. Verse 3. Let's look at the next character in the story. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a great fiery red dragon. Now by now you have an idea who that is. Seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now let's stop right there for a second. Now the word changes. It's not a Stephanos anymore. The word is actually in Greek the same word that is read there in the New King James. Diadem. And that is a crown of a king that acquired his power by force. Now you see that the devil as, as the prince of the powers of the air has acquired his power by force. By deceiving people into falling in a lie. His power is because some people have accepted as truth the replica. Verse 4, he still drew a third of the stars of heaven, these are the angels who were in heaven, and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour the child as soon as it was born. Now you see this woman is pregnant. And no, that baby that she's pregnant with is not Jesus. The church did not give birth to Jesus. Are you with me? This child is the people who will open the door to Jesus for Jesus in Laodicea time. And if you remember from last week, the times of Laodicea are our times today. So even today, there are people who are living on the last times of the history of the world, but don't have it together yet. But the good news is that there are good people who are being faithful to God, who have certain characteristics that allows them to be called the remnant. In other words, the last piece. Let me tell you, let me explain it to you like this. See, my, my, my mom used to make this, this, this water, this, this juice. There, 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 uh, there's a, a, a fruit named tamarind. You know what tamarind is? And my mom used to, used to buy a dry, and out of that, she would make a juice. Sweet, tasty, awesome. 
awesome water. But the thing about that kind of juice is that if you let it settle for a while, if you don't drink it quickly once you pour it in the glass, there's sedimentation. It sediments on the bottom. All the pulp comes to the bottom. Now you drink it, you drink the water, but then at the bottom of the glass, you know what I'm talking about? Now you're like, I want some. It's all the pulp. Well, that pulp on the bottom is the remnant. That's where the flavor is. That's where the substance is. They were all together in the same glass, but only a portion of it is where the true stuff is. Now, this is the history of the Christian era. Let me explain this to you like this. I'm going to block somebody, so I'm going to stand in the middle. When Jesus died on the cross, that is the beginning of the Christian era. And you know we are in the Christian era because we believe in Christ. Okay. So the Christian era lasts all the way until the second coming of Christ. Yes, of Jesus. So this is the history of the Christian era. This is exactly what we have been studying for the last eight weeks. The history of the Christian era. Today we are in this part. Right before the second coming. And this is the time where these events that we're talking about, where the remnant comes into play, occur. Now let's go to verse 7. And war, I'm sorry, um, not verse 7. This Christian era, I'm so excited about what I want to share with you that I want to get ahead. This history of the Christian church represents every segment of the history of the experience that the believers on Christ have gone through until the moment of His coming. But there's always a question. Why are there so many Christian churches? If there are so many Christian churches who believe in Jesus, why are there so many? Shouldn't there be just one? And because there are so many, the question is, which one is the true one? And which ones are replicas? Now, the first thing that we have to look at is the historic events that happen through the Christian era. Chapter 6 says, um, chapter uh, 12 verse 6 says, then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now, who is the woman? The faithful people of Christ, the church. Now, if she has fled to the wilderness, that is because she has been persecuted, right? She's been chased. So when we read chapter 6, I mean verse 6, I keep saying chapter, verse 6, it says, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. 
Now, notice that this persecution is not 10 days like, like we studied a few, a few weeks back. This persecution is long. It's long. It's for over 2,000 years. Correct? So because this persecution is great, it's, it's, it's long, lasted a long time, we know one thing, that this remnant, this church of the last days surfaces after the great persecution. Are you with me? So that means that every other church who came to in existence before the great persecution is not the remnant. Now let me continue to explain this to you. Verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Now you thought there was war only on earth? No, there's also war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. Okay, we know who the dragon is, correct? But Michael, this is an interesting word because in English, it's a compound word. It's a word that is formed by two other words. One of those words is El. El means God. Like in Daniel, Daniel, El means God. Daniel, God is my judge. Well, Michael is two words. El that is for God, and mich, mich is a preposition like. So this Michael is someone who is like God. And the only one who is like God is Jesus. Remember when the Pharisees asked Jesus, show us the Father, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? So Jesus is fighting against the devil in heaven. Now, what was this fight about? Remember that the devil with the tail brings down a third of the angels? The devil did not start lying on earth. He began his lies in heaven. And from the moment that he began to lie, the battle has been in the minds of all the creatures of God. The heavenly creatures and the earthly creatures. And every single one has allowed by the love of God to make a personal choice, to make a decision. No one on this universe is forced to make a choice. God is allowed by His love, every single individual, to make a decision on earth and even the angels in heaven. Now, and it says, Michael and his angels fought the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, verse 8, by day they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So, hmm, question, who won the battle in heaven? Michael, right? Jesus won the battle in heaven. So verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels was, were cast out with him. And a question arises. When did this battle take place? Some people believe, because it's logical, that it happened before the creation of humans. That is why the serpent was on, uh, on earth. And that's why she, she deceived Eve. But then when we read the book of Job, we find that the devil has access to heaven. So we come to a, a difficult situation because, okay, 
if it was a spell from heaven, why is he doing back up there in the time of Job? In the book of Spirit of Prophecy that we'll talk about in a few minutes, says this in page 194 in the volume 3. The casting down of Satan as an accuser of the brethren in heaven was accomplished. Listen carefully. Was accomplished but the great work of Christ in giving up his life. When did Jesus die? Remember the cross? So Satan lost his chance to have access to heaven when Jesus died on the cross. That is the moment when victory took place in heaven and on earth. Now, verse 13, Revelation 2, 12. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. So now he couldn't defeat Jesus because Jesus defeated him on the cross. Now he's attacking the faithful people of Jesus. Now we come into the Christian era. And he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Remember the male child? Who is that? It's not Jesus. The woman, the church does not give birth to Jesus. Take that image out of your head. The church does not give birth to Jesus. Jesus is born of the Father. He's the only begotten. He is not created by humans. The church is human. Are you with me? The child is the remnant people. Now listen. But the woman was given two wings of great eagles that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times and half a time. From the presence of the serpent. So now you see again that the woman is being what? Persecuted. Now when we take the principle of year by... Uh, uh, a day by, by a year, we discover that time times a half a time is the same amount of 2,260 years. So this long persecution is the same thing, just reference in these two verses in different ways. And it says, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Now, if during the persecution, during the violence, which we call the great persecution, the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. You familiar with that? You learned that in school, in history? Okay, this is a period in time where nobody could read the scriptures the way we do today. Nobody had access to the Bible in their own language. In fact, if you had a Bible in your possession or a scroll or whatever you had in those days, you were condemned to die. So people were not allowed to read the scriptures. That's the essence of the great persecution. But now we have an interesting fact here. Because the devil could not defeat the God and his faithful people through the great persecution. Because even through the dark ages, we still have a Christian church. We still have believers. So he says, okay, violence is not working. Let's do something else. Let's use isms. Now he's attacking with his mouth. You see? A river of ideas. 
You know, it's funny because it wasn't until the 17th, 18th century where the ideas of, of, of uh, evolution and, and the ideas of, of, uh, of um, uh, atheism come into play. Before that, everybody believed in God, even if they didn't practice. So now what we find is that the devil is not attacking by violence anymore. He's attacking by ideas, the mind. But notice what God does, verse 16. But the earth helped the woman. How did the earth help the woman? How did the earth help the church? And the earth opened his mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So all these ideas, guess what happened at the same time? Archaeological discoveries show evidences of the veracity of the Bible. So now the earth itself is popping up elements that were mentioned in the Bible and putting doubt in people about the reality of the non-existence of God. In other words, the existence of God has been proved. The existence of the Bible has been proved by archaeology. Now, so let's go back to the first element of this, the characteristics of the, of the remnant. We said that the remnant surfaces after the what? Okay, two are awake. Of the great persecution. Now, if that is a great persecution and this remnant surfaces after the great persecution, we could say that it is safe to say that anybody, any, any Christian church that surfaces after 1844 is pretty safe. I do. Well, let me prove you why. The second characteristic is that not only has to surface after the great persecution, but keeps all the commandments of God. Now, you see, keyword, all the commandments of God. Revelation 17, 12, 17, first part. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. So he tried violence, didn't work. He tried ideas, didn't work. So now he's going to attack them. And he says, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who is the rest of her offspring? The remnant, the child, remember? Who keep the commandments of God. Are you reading what I'm reading? Who keep the commandments of God. Now, we got we to gotta understand what this means. Because see, in the Bible we find several commandments, not just the ten. We find many commandments. All over the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we find many, many commandments. So what we find in, in the Bible is that we have our point of reference, the, the cross. And, and also we find in the book of Exodus chapter 20, we find what we call the, the experience in Sinai. And in Sinai was when people of Israel exited Egypt, God speaks to Moses. And in that moment, God gave Moses the commandments. And the form of the tablets written by his finger. Remember that? Do you remember the movie? Okay. Now. Now. Let me explain something to you, family. That was the moment that God gave the commandments to Moses. That does not mean that was the origin of the commandments. 
Are you breathing? God gave the commandments to Moses because the people of Israel needed several things. First of all, for 400 years, they had been slaves. They had no sense of order. They had no sense of experience with God. They're not worshiping at a temple. They're not offering sacrifices. They really didn't know God except their stories that they passed on and on and on. But even the, 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 Hebrew, the Hebrews in Egypt, they were practicing more religion of the Egyptians than the religions of the God of heaven. So God is saying the first thing you need to know Moses is that I am the center of your people. I am the reason why you are free. I am the reason why you exist and I am the reason of where you are going. So this is what you need to understand. That to have a purpose, to have a reason, to have a direction, you need to get to know me and my character, my life, who I am is reflected in these Ten Commandments. So if you want to get to know me and have a personal experience with me, this is what you need to know. So God gave Moses the Ten Commandments again. This is when God gave Moses the commandments, not when the commandments initiated. The commandments have been in place from eternity past and will be there for eternity future. Now, the first part that God gives Moses is the Ten Commandments and we have a term for that. We call it the moral law. And the moral law family has three characteristics. First was designed to have a relationship with God. Second, it shows the character of God and the character of the individual. And the longevity, the, 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 the time that this law will last will be for eternity. But also because he, they were a people who did not know any kind of order. They didn't have sense of order. They needed to have another kind of law. And this was the ceremonial law. This law has to do with diet and what to do when somebody's sick. And how to relate to, to each other. And even how to practice intimacy. Now this law was given... So that people could have proper relationship with each other. Not just with God, but with each other. Also was given to create order among the people. Remember, when they came out of Egypt, the only order they knew was the whip. So God establishes the, the, the ceremonial law for them to understand how to do things right. As they deal with each other, even when they lend money, even when they sold land, even how they treated each other, if they cause harm to, to property, that is there. And this law is not eternal like the moral law. This law is only temporal. Now, when we go back to the timeline, we discover that it was... The moment of the Exodus and Sinai when the tablets were given, when the Ten Commandments were written. But the reality is that the Ten Commandments will last and have lasted for eternity. Because they are the character of God. So what God is saying, at the end of times, there's going to be a group of people who will seek my character. Who will reflect my character. And the only way that they can do it is when they observe not one of the commandments, not nine of the commandments, but when they observe all ten of the commandments, including the Sabbath. Because let me tell you, there's a lot of churches who don't steal. At least they believe in not stealing. 
there's a lot of churches who believe in not committing adultery. Because there's other churches who say it's okay. There's a lot of churches who believe that there's one God. But only a handful believe that the Sabbath is the day of the Lord. So what God is saying, my character is reflected by my law, by this moral law that I'm giving you. So those who will remain faithful till the end will have to reflect my character. That's why this group has to keep the commandments. Now that, that we got that, that one out of the way, let's go to a more sticky one. Because this group will have the testimony of Jesus. Same verse, 17, but the second part. First it says that this group will have, will keep the commandments. But then it says, and will have the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus Christ. Now this is quite interesting because testimony we know that is an experience. Correct? When somebody shares a testimony, it's been their experience. Their experience. But let's take a look at one of the rules of interpreting revelations. And understanding revelation, we need to understand the whole Bible. Remember that? And the beautiful thing about this is that God gives us the answer in his own book in, in Revelation. Now, let me show you what chapter 19 verse 10 says. This is John. John is a revelator. John is the one who is writing Revelation inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's in the island of Patmos and he receives a vision. And in this vision, there's an angel in front of him. And I don't know if you've noticed as we read the Bible, but every time somebody encounters an angel, what do we do? We fear. We fall down. We bow, right? That's what happens through the Bible. So John has the same experience. He sees the angel and he falls at the feet and worships him. But he said, the angel speaks to John and says, see that you do not do that. Don't worship me. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Okay, we see that again. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, we were confused with the testimony of Jesus. Now we're more confused with the spirit of prophecy. Now. Let's go to chapter 22, verse 9. John has the same experience. He's in the vision and he sees an angel. And when he sees the angel, guess what John does? He bows down. He kneels down before the angel. But the angel then said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am a fellow servant. Does that sound familiar? Just like the other one, right? Same scene, same experience, same, same things going on. And of your brethren, the prophets. So now he changes the idea. The angel says the same thing but in a different way. See, he's now not saying anymore those who have the testimony of Jesus or the spirit of prophecy. But he says, your brethren, the what? The prophets. And of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, let me show you something. This is the part of show and tell of the sermon. I have a Bible. In fact, this one is so cool that says holy. This is a Bible. 
This is the Bible that we use today in our modern times. In the time of John, they did not have the New Testament. They only had the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible from Genesis to Malachi, the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, was written mostly in Hebrew. And the order of the books was a little bit different than the order of the books that we have today. See, today we kind of have them in a chronological order. Kind of. But in those days, they had them in different ways. They have different sections. First, they have the Nabi'in. Nabi'in means the prophets. Nabu, Nabi is a prophet. Nabi'in, Nabu is a, a Star Wars. Uh, Nabi, it, it's a prophet. Nabi'in is plural for prophet. Now, so that was the section of the prophets. And, and, and Isaiah and, and Ezekiel and all these prophets were there. Then we have the, the, the Ketubim. And Ketubim were the writings. Like Psalms and, and, and Job and, and, and all these other books. Now, you understand that the other part of the Bible was known as the Torah. And the Torah, well, it just means the law. So Torah was the, what we call today the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, when somebody said the prophets, it was equivalent to saying the Torah. Because Moses was a prophet. So when somebody said, have you read the prophets, was the same thing as saying, have you read the Bible? When somebody said, have you read the Torah, was equivalent of saying, have you read the Bible? Are you with me? Now, so when John has this experience, he's saying, I am a servant of yours and with your brethren, the prophets, the ones who read in the Bible. So read the book. Are you reading? For God, what's important is to have a group of people who reads the Bible, who understands the Bible, because it was his people used by him, inspired by his Holy Spirit, who wrote the Bible. That's why it's the prophets, not just one prophet, it's the prophets, plural. Are you with me? Okay. Now let's go to the other part. I have another book right here. You know the title of it? Spirit of Prophecy. Wait, didn't we just learn that the Spirit of Prophecies were written by the prophets in the Old Testament? The reason why this book is titled Spirit of Prophecy was because it was written by one author, Ellen G. White. Now, let me explain something to you. We do believe, as Seventh-day Adventist Church, that Ellen G. White was inspired by God. But let me tell you a difference between her writings and the writings of the Bible. Okay? And I'm going to show it. To you in her own words. This is what she says in the book, The Great Controversy. And this is what she says. That at the end times, God will raise a group of people that will use the Bible. And only the Bible 
as a source of doctrine and belief. Are you with me? In fact, she makes reference that her books are a lesser light that point to a greater light. Okay, let me tell it to you like this. A while ago, I was doing a week of prayer in Salt Lake City. And now when you heard Salt Lake City, you know who's there. So I went to Salt Lake City and during the week of prayer in the morning, the pastor said, you know, would you like to, to, to visit the, the tabernacle? And, you know, I've seen on TV the choir singing on the, there in the Mormon tabernacle. And I know that it's a building with an acoustic that is tremendously amazing. And I said, sure. So he took me there. And when he took me there, we were greeted at the door by young people that had in their hands a little blue book. You know the name of the book is the Book of Mormon. And it's not the play. That's not with Book of Mormon. So they have it with them. And they take it everywhere they go. And as they take us in the tour, and it was amazing because there was somebody in the altar in the front of the, of the tabernacle. And they had a tray, a wooden tray. And somebody dropped a pin. And the pin bounced on the tray. I was sitting way back there and I could hear the pin fall. Because of the acoustics of the dome of the tabernacle. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And, but everywhere we went, as we went through the tour, all these young people are walking around and talking to us about the temple, the design, the, the, the idea, the history. But all of them have in their hand the blue book. When I came out of that place, I had an idea. A question was set in my mind. If we take these books away from these young people, what would they be? They would not be Mormons anymore. Are you with me? And then I thought, if these books are taken away from us, what would we be? Still Seventh-day Adventist. Because our doctrine is based on the Bible. Our doctrine is founded and solidly constructed on the writings of the prophets. In the scriptures. Now, then why do we give so much importance? Well, let me ask you a question. Who could have inspired all those counsels to teachers, pa parents, pastors, doctors, nurses, counsels on health, on, on parenting, on, on, on speech, on nutrition, on, 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 on remedies, natural remedies? Who would have inspired the scenes in the Desire of ages about Jesus dying on the cross. Who would have inspired those, uh, those images of the prophets and, and patriots and prophets. And all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of counsels that are written by her pen. Well, the question is this. They're either inspired by the devil or inspired by God. There's no other two ways. I believe that they were inspired by God. But let's understand this. Our doctrine is not based on her writings. Our doctrine is based on the Bible and the Bible alone. Because the people who are part of the remnant uses the Bible and the Bible alone as proof and foundation for every doctrine and precept. Well, we know now that this group, this remnant, this child of the woman, this people who believe and come out of Laodicea before Jesus comes back, comes out of the great persecution, after the great persecution, keeps all the commandments, 
has the spirit of prophecy. But there's one more thing. They overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 11 says, and they are victorious by the what? By the blood of the Lamb. Because you know there was a time that even as Adventists, we believed that we were going to be saved by keeping the commandments. But see family, the commandments are just a fence, a fence of protection. And every fence has posts th that hold the fence. And each one of the commandments is a post that holds the fence that God intended us to be protected by. And when I choose to break a commandment, I choose to tear down a pillar, to take down a post. And when a post is torn, I allow the devil to come into my life. So the commandments are there to protect me, not to get save me. The only one that has saved me, the one that provided the fence of protection is Jesus. So the faithful people of God not only surface out of the great persecution, not only keep all the commandments, not only have the spirit of prophecy, but they have the victory assured by the blood of the Lamb. Because Jesus is everything. See, I, I remember a while ago when I was a younger man, <laughs> Pastor Jim Ayers, he used to be the base for the quartet, the King's Heralds. You might remember if you've been around for a while. And, and I remember being in a couple of concerts of the Heralds. And, 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 and they were singing. And, and after each song, or before each song, better said, each one of the, comp of the members of the quartet will introduce the following song. And I remember Pastor, uh, Pastor Ayers, one time, he was talking about his hometown in Michigan. And he was telling a story about a basketball team in our mountain, Michigan. And he said, this is a small town. It's not a big town where I grew up. It, it was a small town and nothing major happened there except their high school had a championship level basketball team. And he said it was interesting to see that when there was a basketball game, the whole town would close down. They would go to the gym and not everybody fit in the gym. So people would go around and try to peek through the windows and people would be outside and asking what's the score they would hear the uproar inside the gym <sighs> and people would ask who scored who scored and every time the basketball team from our mountain won a game there was a parade on the streets and everybody would go out to the main street and the basketball team would go in a car and everybody would yell at once we won! We won! We won! But the truth is that only five people won on the court. But because of those five people, they made everyone victorious. Family, today I want to tell you that we could say with assurance and certainty that we've won. Because we have been victorious by the blood of the Lamb. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he not only defeated the devil, but he gave us the victory. And the promise is that any one of those who believe on the blood of the Lamb have assurance to eternal salvation. Because victory has been given to us in Jesus Christ. Family, today we celebrate that victory. Today we have a special ceremony. We call it communion. And we call it communion because this is the moment that we come close to Jesus. 
It's a moment that we celebrate that his body was smitten and his blood was shed for our sins. He took the punishment on his body that we deserve because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And he took it upon himself so that we could be victorious. But the Bible also tells us that there's nothing that cleanses better than the blood of Jesus. And when we take that wine, the Bible is telling us that we are claiming the victory that we could not attain by ourselves, but that Jesus has already given us. Now, when we take communion, people believe, well, I'm not ready. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you a sinner? You're ready. Do you believe that Jesus Christ can cleanse your sin? Then you're ready. In fact, the spirit of prophecy tells us that every time that we celebrate communion, it's an opportunity that we cannot miss. Because he just gets us closer to the time when we'll be in heaven celebrating the first communion. So today what we're going to do, family, is that we're going to walk outside. And, and there's rooms separated for couples, for, ma for male and for females to perform what we call the washing of feet of the ordinance of humility. And this is a moment, just like Jesus did to his disciples, that when he was in the upper room before he was arrested, he washed the feet of the disciples before the Last Supper. And that is the moment that we come humbly before our family, our church, our Jesus, our God. And we tell them, God, I'm not worthy of your, of your sacrifice. But today, I want to tell you that you are the reason why I'm here. And that is why I kneel before you. And then once we're done with that, once we, we're done with that, we come back here. And we take together the emblems to celebrate the victory that we received by Jesus Christ. So I'm going to have a short prayer and then we go outside to, to the rooms. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for, for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for his sacrifice. We thank you for the opportunity you've given us to, to be victorious in his name. Father, there's nothing that we have deserved or done to deserve it. But Father, we thank you because you love us so much, even in spite of us, that you allow the greatest gift this universe I've ever seen to be ours. And that is why in Jesus' name we thank you.